Welcome to Canine Top Tales, a podcast which showcases stories of the amazing work of military, law enforcement, and search and rescue canines, as told by their handlers. I am your host, Sonia Nordstrom, a retired special agent of the FBI and 25-year handler of search and rescue recovery canines. I am so excited to introduce my guest today, Linda Porter, who is joining us remotely from the Canine Training Academy in Canyon City, Colorado. Linda and her husband, John Lutenberg, are the absolute gold standard trainers and my number one go-to for tracking and trailing dogs. With decades of experience between them, they've been instrumental in building several successful law enforcement trailing dog programs. But what we're going to talk about today is the work they've done with the Mara Conservancy in Kenya, Africa, training up tracking and detection dogs to combat poaching. So Linda, welcome and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Well, thank you, Sonia. It's good to be here. It's really fun. Um, so can you just start by telling me a little bit about your background, the Canine Training Academy, and how you came to specialize in tracking and trailing dogs specifically? So uh, back in 1997, um, I started a bloodhound uh, uh, unit for uh, a police department in the metro area that I was working for. And I was looking for trainers uh, to help me train that dog. And I uh, met John Lutenberg um, at that point in time and started training with him. And he got my tracking dogs, um, helped me get my tracking dogs up and running for criminal deployments for the police department that I was working for at the time. And um, in meeting John, um, we ended up married, of course, and uh, I moved to Canyon City in 1997, and him and I had been to a great deal of seminars across the United States and just thought that between the two of us, um, we had a lot to offer out there for training, and John's experience being extensive in the training of, of tracking and trailing dogs. And so we started the Canine Training Academy in 1997. And we started offering seminars to um, law enforcement and search and rescue uh, people. And it, it just grew from there um, uh, all the way up to today, where we are still offering tracking and trailing classes um, a couple, two or three times a year um, for the purpose of training law enforcement and search and rescue uh, tracking and trailing dogs. And, and can you explain a little bit that, you know, people make a distinction between tracking versus trailing and, and we're sort of joining them together. Do you want to explain that a little bit? That is probably the most common question that I get asked um, in, in our training classes. And so, yeah, so for us, um, and it's just, this is just, um, you know, our way of looking at it is um, mostly the training technique. Most people think of tracking dogs as footstep to footstep uh, dogs following um, what they call ground disturbance. And trailing dogs um, may be uh, following scent in, uh, instead of ground disturbance. And if you, if you really take a good hard look at it, it's, it's really very difficult to separate the two. <laughs> okay. So um, the dog, you know, what the dog follows, we don't, we don't really know or understand, but I can tell you that the difference between tracking and trailing for us is the training style. So tracking dogs may be, may be working tighter on the track. Uh, our tracking dogs, um, you know, work scent. Uh, and trailing dogs is a little bit, I think, what you would call maybe a looser style of tracking, where the dog is allowed to a little bit more freedom on the line, a, a, a little bit more freedom to work a track in his own 
uh, informal way, I guess you would say. But you are working them on a long line, like a yes, 30 foot line? Yes, we do work them. We work all the dogs on a long line. We don't work any dogs off lead. And so John and I kind of, over the years, have developed a system that's kind of in between that tracking and trailing um, um, training. And what about the scent specificity? So, so you mean the scent discrimination? Yes. Yeah, right. So we know that dogs can discriminate uh, between scents and scent discrimination is teaching the dog to discriminate between one scent and another is part of the training process. So, you know, we would teach a dog uh, with, in, under those conditions, we would teach a dog to smell a scent article and follow a track that was related to that particular, the particular odor on that article. And I know that you and John both, you train, you know, apprehension dogs, patrol dogs, detection dogs. And so you've worked with all different kinds of breeds. Um, but I, I'm of the impression that hounds are really your go-to for the trailing and tracking work. <laughs> yeah, I think that that um, over the years, um, John and I have trained a lot of bloodhounds um, in a sense. They are, um, you know, specifically bred for that kind of work, but really any dog um, that has the proper genetics has the ability to, you know, track or trail. Um, you know, some dogs are better at it than others. Some dogs' genetics lean heavier towards, you know, tracking and trailing than other dogs. But I think for the most part, I can't really um, say that, you know, I can't really say that a bloodhound in one instance is better than a German Shepherd, um, depending on the training it's received. Okay. So you might have a German Shepherd that's a really, really good tracking dog and a bloodhound that hasn't been trained properly that isn't, isn't, isn't as quite as good. So. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, so with regard to this um, work at the, con at the Conservancy, how did that even come to be? Who reached out to whom? How, how did that uh, even come up? Mm, very interesting. So um, years ago in 2008, I believe it was, we received an email, basically a call for help from um, a woman named Asuka Takeda, who is uh, the veterinarian on staff over in the Mar over in the over at the Mara Conservancy. And the email said that they were looking for bloodhounds to add to their anti-poaching unit and they could not acquire those dogs in Kenya. They'd been trying for three years. And so it's kind of funny that that whole story, I was sitting in my office and I read the email and I kind of yelled down the stairs to my husband, hey, I just got an email from Kenya. Would you, uh, would you like to take a trip to Kenya? And he kind of, you know, John, he kind of just shrugged his shoulders and said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and for, those of, for those people that know John, you can imagine. But um, so I, I wrote her back and got a little bit more information from her about you know, what their expectations were, um, you know, what they were doing, how they were, um, how they could see deploying these dogs and using them. And we sort of communicated back and forth for about two or three months and decided that that actually might be feasible to train a couple of dogs for them on the ground here in Colorado and then take the dogs to Kenya and train the rangers to work them um, in their own area. And so that's basically what we did. And from the contact date to the actual landing of landing in Kenya with two working bloodhounds, 
was about nine or 10 months. How old did you start? Did you start puppies or did you start adolescents or were these dogs that had already kind of been started or did you do anything differently? So we did. Yeah. So, and you, so we, we, uh, we, we acquired two puppies that we knew came from very good working lines and we trained them from eight weeks all the way up to about nine months. Uh, and then ship, we ship, we took them to Kenya with us. So we put the dogs on the plane and, and went with them and ended up in Kenya in June of 2009. That's still super young, isn't it? For maturity and everything it, else? It, yes, it is. It, it's very young, but people generally with bloodhounds, and I'm not really sure, you know, why this is, but people tend to train them from puppies up. Okay. Whereas, you know, with the pointy-eared dogs, um, some people will acquire those at two years of age and, and train them at that point. But we tended to uh, train uh train dogs from from the ground up from eight weeks and at nine months with good training on the ground here in Colorado they were mostly ready to go when we hit the ground in Kenya. Did you try to do anything differently based on the specs that were provided? (laughs) You know we (laughs) we actually asked the conservancy you know what what a what a poaching deployment would actually look like what kind of terrain we were trying to deal with you know distances Um, you know, animals and things like that. And honestly, I have to tell you, Sonia, when we hit the ground in Kenya, and so we we tried to train for some of those scenarios where there's long distance and distances involved over some, you know, rough terrain that included some forest, foresty areas and included some bear areas, things like that. You know, we didn't work a whole lot on scent discrimination. We trained the dogs really to take off on a footprint off the ground because that's mostly what we were going to be dealing with in Kenya. They weren't going to have scent articles from these guys. They were going to have foot tracks, which is what John started most of his dogs on most of his life when he was doing escapes. So that's how we trained them. And honestly, when we hit the ground in Kenya and started to drive to the outpost, um, our jaws pretty much hit the floor. Um, as we're driving, you know, into this remote area, we're seeing, you know, elephants and giraffe and buffalo and lions all on the ground where we're supposed to be training. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So as as much as we tried to prepare ourselves, um, we weren't really prepared ourselves when we got there. So you couldn't have found some elk herds to run through or or go to the zoo or anything? (laughs) Um, you know, no, that, that, that really didn't work out, you know, here in Colorado. And so, you know, basically we were up against some things that we'd never seen, not only, um, running tracking dogs on the ground over rough terrain and high grass with wild animals, but from a tactical perspective as well. So, um, things were, were a lot different than what we were, what our training provided, you know, for us and, and what was going on over there. What were the tactical differences? So again, we, we ended up having to run through very, very thick thickets um, filled with wild animals. And the rangers had a tendency to, if they spread out even five or six feet in a line or tried to get a tactical formation spread out that way, you couldn't see them. Uh, you couldn't see each other and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't get through the underbrush in a formation like that. So what would end up happening is the rangers would usually end up in a single file formation, which was a little bit different and scary for us. So, you know, we, we sort of, um, the second trip that we made over, we sort of, you know, 
worked with the rangers and how they did their we ended up working with the rangers and and sort of modifying the tactics that they had to use compared to ours um how many when you took the first two dogs over how many handlers were you trying to train were you trying to train them so that if you could send future dogs they'd be good to go were they multiple handlers per dog or was it kind of just a primary group or how did that work out so interestingly enough that question um is kind of funny uh interestingly enough they said that there were originally going to be four handlers for two dogs and that's and they were going to be fully trained rangers at least that is what we understood um before we got there and when we arrived, what we ended up with were eight handlers for two dogs, and they were men, or they were they were um, a combination of guys that had p- applied for the positions that were not trained rangers. So they were from different tribes up on the escar- up on the escarpment, and guys that that needed jobs that had the potential to be bu- good bush guys. And so, and we were also dealing with a language barrier. I was just going to ask. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. So, so one of the rangers who um, was a, had a little bit of had some formal education, and spoke very good English. He translated everything for us in three different tribal languages while we were there. So there was Swahili, and there was Maasai, and there was Kisi. And so all these guys spoke different languages. The common language between most of them was Swahili. And so every time we would speak, this young man would translate for us. So you can imagine how things kind of got backwards. <laughs> for for the, the first trip we made there, we'd been there five times. The first trip we made there, we were there for a month on the ground, training the rangers to work the dogs. And And did they have any, I mean... Obviously, there are people who want to protect animals, so they care, but was there any skill or, or knowledge at all? You know, these guys were incredibly talented and incredibly motivated because it was a job and they needed jobs to provide for their families. And so, yes, they were extremely athletic. They had, most of them, had very good bush skills already um, and were going to be, after they graduated from the dog training, were going to be full-fledged, planning to be full-fledged rangers. So yes, there was a lot of really good skills there, um, just natural, good natural skills there to begin with. We were just, we were just in awe at how, how much attention they paid to our instruction, um, you know, it was just a very, very important how hard they tried, um, how athletic they were. It, it was incredible. Was it just John and you who went on the first trip? That's correct. Just John and I. Yeah. Okay. What were your accommodations, if I may ask? So, yeah. So we were stationed at an outpost called Ingarare. And it was about two kilometers from the Tanzanian border, uh, the Kenyan, right up against the Kenyan-Tanzanian border, which is where most of the poaching took place. And it was basically, our accommodations were a small tent inside a compound. Uh, The the walls were about 20 feet high. They had, um, I don't know what you call them, uh, outposts, lookout posts on each side of um, of the structure and big iron gates that closed at night. And so we stayed in there in a small tent and we had um, a cook 
who would uh, generally cook for us um, daily. Um, and the rangers also lived inside that compound. So we were inside the compound um, when we were not outside working dogs. And how many other people were in the compound? Oh, probably maybe 15 rangers. Well, that's not big then, okay. No. And, and so when you're saying you're out there and there's animals in the grass, what are the dogs <laughs> doing with this? I mean, they, they've got to have a, a natural fear response, I would think. So one of the dogs that we took over um, had a really hard time with the pungent smell of the poachers. So he was really sort of um, frightened, I, I guess I would say, of, of that particular smell. So he would get within about 30 yards and stop and throw his head up and, and sort of there would be uh, the hackles would go up and everything. So the rangers knew they knew they were close. The other the other dog had no issues whatsoever. The one thing that we did notice the 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 elephants and the giraffes and and the most of the uh, you know wildebeest and animals like that neither of the dogs had any problems with. But I will tell you that there was a difference in behavior in both dogs when there was a when there was a predatory odor like a lion or a leopard there would definitely be some hesitation there to go in and through that area. And usually if that happened, there was some sign that there had been or was a predator in the area. I think we've seen that even up in the mountains here. When, when we're up searching, we've got big cats up here in the mountains in Utah. And mm -hmm. you'll see a definite change of behavior that's... Um, and with the grizzlies up in Yellowstone, you can see the dogs yep. say, hey, wait a second, I didn't sign up for this exactly. But um... Heimdaller Canine Services, a supplier of top quality canines for personal, family, and executive protection. Heimdaller conducts hands-on selection from the finest breeders and kennels in Europe to locate top-tier dogs selected for their courage, stability, sociability, and health. We personally deliver the dog to you and provide training to help you integrate your new Heimdaller dog into your life. You can find information regarding Heimdaller Protection Canines on our website, www.heimdallerk9.com, or contact us via email at heimdallerk9 at gmail.com. We are happy to answer any questions you may have regarding adding a protection dog to your home and look forward to hearing from you. So you actually, in your training, your one month training, you were actually tracking poachers, not just training exercises? So training exercises for the first month that we were there, we did all training exercises with the with the new handlers. The second trip, um, we went back, we turned around and went back six weeks later because they were having a hard time adjusting to the actual deployment process. Okay. And so we did work ambushes uh, with the rangers on the second trip where we were actually deploying the dogs at night after poachers. The first trip was solely training. So can you describe what you mean by ambush deployments? So we would we would wait till dark and then we would go out to an area where that we knew was heavily snared 
or there were snares set up in that area. We'd been through there during the day. We could see the snares. We picked up a lot of the snares that were there. We would go back at night to that known area and we would wait. So the, some of the rangers would get out of the vehicle on foot and they would go and they would physically look or sit and wait for the poachers around their snare areas. And we would stay back with the vehicles, with the dogs in them. And when the rangers radioed that they, that the, the chase was on, then we would join them with the dogs and the vehicle. So were the dogs also used then to locate the snares following the tracks during the day? No. So snare, uh, when we were on snare patrol, we would walk on foot and cut and pick up and cut snares out of trees, cut light, cut animals out of snares, animals that were had, that had been snared that were still alive. We would uh, go in and we would cut the animals out of the snares and release them with the help of the rangers. So we would spend, we would walk maybe 15 miles a day, find the snared areas take the animals that had survived the snares or were still caught in the snares, cut them out, let release them. And then um, we would set up uh, later in that evening, we would go back and set up an ambush for that area, hoping to get a deployment for the dogs. Okay. Wow. Um, what were the primary um, target animals of the snares? So the target animals, un unfortunately, snares are indiscriminate. And so the target animals are wildebeest, zebra, um, you know, things like things like that, that just kind of that can run through the snares and and hold the snares are actually made out of old tire wire. And when the animals run through them, they're tied to trees and they they catch around the animal's neck or feet and they either choke them to death or their feet get caught in them. And if the poachers don't come and kill them, they die a slow, gruesome death in the snares. So um, but if the animals were caught and still alive and the poachers got down there, they would come and they would spear them and kill them and then clean them out and then carry the meat up the escarpment on their backs. So the majority, so, so I think when I think of poachers, I'm thinking of tusks and horns right, and right. not necessarily thinking of meat and survival. So, so is there a mixture there? So yeah, so there is. So there is some ivory poaching going on in the Mara Triangle. There is a, a rhino poaching going on. But more so uh, than that, because the ranger patrols are so good, bushmeat. And um, bushmeat consists of zebras, wildebeests, um, you know, animals like that. But again, those are the target animals, but other animals get caught in them. We took, you know, we, we found lions that were killed in snares. We found baby giraffes that were killed in snares. Um, elephants, um, there were elephants, um, not all over the Mara, but a few elephants that you could tell where their, their trunks had been caught in the snares oh. and it cuts them off. It cuts their trunks halfway off and they live. And so the elephants are out there trying to survive with half a trunk and you could see the animals trying to bend over and eat oh. because they didn't have their trunks available to eat to eat the grass. So those kinds of things are, are heartbreaking and very sad. So like I said, bushmeat is the target, which is, you know, the herd animals, but the snares are indiscriminate and, you know, all sorts of animals get caught in them. So um, when you went on your second trip, what did it feel like on that first, like we're going after a real guy? What were you thinking? <laughs> well, we'd been through the thickets and, and, and things up to that point, we were, we were sort of, you know, familiar with the terrain and where they hid out. 
But honestly, the first time I went in looking for poachers with rangers, it was it was a day run. We went through, we took the dogs and were we were cleaning out, basically cleaning out thickets. And so the poachers tend to hide in the thickets during the day. Um, and that's that's where you find them. And so we would go into these thickets where you couldn't see the guy next to you, five feet next to you. And I can tell you my <laughs> my heart rate, you know, was was pounding out of my chest and you're you're trying to listen for sounds and follow you know hang hang with the ranger that you're supposed to be assigned to and every time he would stop and put his finger to his lips and tell us to be quiet you know your heart would just race or a twig would snap <laughs> oh my gosh and your heart would just race because and i mean you couldn't just you just couldn't wait to get out the other side wow. and mostly you know, the poachers were one thing, but the wild animals inside those thickets were another. And when you come across fresh elephant scat or, you know, a lion print on the ground, you're always thinking in the back of your mind, okay, what's right around the corner? So in a way, I'm thinking having that more sensitive dog might be a better survival tool? <laughs> I, seriously, I mean, the one that's blowing through anything, he'll take you right between the legs of an elephant, won't he? I mean, right. the other one is like, hey, we may not want to go here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so so those were, you know, those sorts of deployments were, you know, until you got sort of used to it, you just hoped that you could run faster than the guy behind you, right? <laughs> oh gosh, wow, and, and what kind of um, weaponry do the poachers typically have in this area? So in this area, um, unless they're poaching rhino or elephant, uh, firearms are hard to acquire in Kenya. Um, and so most of the time, what we would, what we would confiscate or see as weaponry um, were long spears and bows and arrows tipped with poison. So um, on, typically on, a, on an ambush, the poachers would be carrying, you know, eight foot spears with them and running in the dark they would literally shove the spears in the ground backwards as they were running away from the rangers hoping that the rangers would run on run on to them interesting yeah and so and they you know they would you know they would shoot their bows or they would you know use their bows and arrows um and you know they would kill animals with them and i guess if you know if they got a chance they might might be able to kill a ranger or two with them as well. So. It sounds like the purpose of their weapons was really more toward getting more the prize they were after, not and and maybe self-defense if they had to. But it doesn't sound like they were. That wasn't really their intention. No, their intention was to kill animals with those weapons, but that's what they had. So yeah, so um, a lot of times what we would confiscate would be meat drying in in the middle of the thickets meat would be drying out on the ground there was one night where we went into an ambush i think eight we caught eight poachers that night in that particular ambush and it was nightfall by the time we got everybody rounded up um and the dogs were actually instrumental in in catching people that evening but we the smell inside of a poacher's camp is overwhelming and John and I didn't have any, we were walking through and we didn't want to turn on, the rangers didn't want to turn on the flashlights and all of a sudden the ground got super spongy and smelly. And so I said, for goodness sakes, turn on a light. And John shined his light down and we were walking, literally walking over meat that was drying on leaves and there were 
you know, zebra hides hanging from the trees and, you know, things like that. Um, so at that point, when we did find the center of the camp, we all decided to pack it up and move out and come during the day because the smell calls the predators in. Oh, wow. So uh, that particular night, we waited till morning and then we went back in um, to the camp and burned all the meat. Sonia's dog training offers a variety of services to meet your dog's behavioral training and canine detection training needs. In addition to providing in-home, one-on-one training locally in the Park City area of Utah, I offer nose work, scent work, full-day workshops, private sessions, and am available for detection and search and rescue recovery seminars throughout the Intermountain West in California. I'm also available for telephone consults and virtual training sessions via Zoom or Facebook. My website, sonyasdogtraining.com, and that's Sonia with a J, has contact information and details regarding all of these services. You can contact me via the website contact page or via direct email, Sonia, S-O-N-J-A, at sonyasdogtraining.com. I am happy to answer any questions regarding these services and look forward to hearing from you. Do you know any of the... Uh, rough value. So, for example, when people are going after the the tusks of rhinos and elephants, what kind of value does that bring a poacher? So, I was told. Oh, this was several years back. I was told there was a there was actually a rhino killed in in right inside the rhino sanctuary when I was there, um, on one stint when I was over there, and the dogs were utilized to track track these guys down. But I was told that the horn was worth on the black market, probably around thirty-five to $50,000 for the horn. And how does that translate in terms of lifestyle there versus, you know, thirty, fifty thousand uh, here is one thing, thirty, fifty thousand yeah. there is worth what? <laughs> well, I think that, you know, I think that it goes, you know, I, I, I couldn't tell you, I mean, a lot. I mean, it, it's like probably three or four years worth of, you know, salary or more, you know. Yeah. Because, you know, a typical ranger doesn't really, you know, doesn't really make all that much money. So, yeah, in terms of value, monetary value for your, for your typical poachers, it's a ton of money. It's, it's, it's a lot of money. And how are these conservancies funded then? Um, a lot of the, well, a lot of the conservancies are funded through donations and tourism. So tourism is, I think, probably close to 50%. 30, 30 to 50 percent of their income um, and then you know you have your foundations like the World Wildlife Foundation that fund and you know donations from private parties uh, and things like that um, that that they have to go on so and it must be tough times for them now with no traveling going on and yeah and I just, just kind just of stand to, still yeah make a little mention that the the Mara, the Mara Triangle is one of the most beautiful places that you could ever visit in Kenya it has the one of the highest concentrations of diverse wildlife in the world and um, if you ever get a chance to go there the park is managed very very well as a matter of fact um, they were saying that in the last year and a half they finally got night vision as well to add to their anti-poaching units but in the last year and a half, they haven't even had a poacher, hardly had any poachers over their borders. Most of them are uh, in the Tanzania border. So they, their, their ranger unit is that good. So, but they're funding right now because of COVID and the torrential rains that have happened this year is, is what has been devastating to the park. 
So their website is, I'll just put a little plug in there. Their website is maratriangle.org and you can certainly donate uh, to the cause to, to help them, um, you know, help them through this really rough period. Um, if you think that's something that you'd like to contribute to. And I'll put that link in the show notes as well as a link to your training facility. Great. Um, sure. Clearly it has been successful. And so how many dogs total have you sent over there at this point? So we did um, three tracking dogs to begin with, and then they bred them and they now have six more. So the unit I think right now in tracking dogs has six um, and they have been able to now with our mentorship through over the years, they've been able to train their own dogs. And we also, in 2011, we took two ivory and gun detection dogs over, which is now part of the program. That you had pre-trained. Yeah, that we pre-trained here um, and taken over there. And they have been instrumental in finding hand grenades and bullet casings and cartridges, guns that are being uh, uh, brought into the park. Most of the time they, they sit at the gates and they check vehicles but a lot of times they go to um, places where they suspect that ivory is being hidden. And so the dogs have been uh, helpful and instrumental in um, combating poaching in that way. And what breeds of dogs did you use for that? We used labs. Okay. Did you have to then go through, it's a, it's a very different kind of training. So did yes. you then have to spend time getting them acclimated? So did they pick that up pretty well too? And they're so, able to yeah, kind of so, perpetuate that? Yeah, the dogs, the, the Labradors, um, you know, tracking is... Tracking is much, much different than detection work, um, as you know, but the track or the detection dogs really um, actually adjusted quite well. We were able to, you know, most of the time they're doing vehicle searches or, you know, home, you know, their BOMA searches and things like that, where there might be suspected ivory, ivory buried in the ground, things like that. So we weren't, you know, dealing with running long distances and they work very similar and almost exactly the same as detection dogs do here in the United States. So we had really no problems, you know, training them here and taking them there. Now their kenneling <laughs> is interesting. You know, everything is double and triple fenced and, you know, to keep the predators out of the kennels and the rangers, their dogs are kept at the ranger stations specifically um, so that they can keep a good, good watch over them. And, I think the biggest, one of the biggest things that we've run into, one of the biggest challenges in keeping dogs in that area is keeping them healthy. Huh. And so we've got, you know, insects that cause all kinds of problems, um, you know, and uh, things that, that dogs are susceptible to um, that have really, that can really take, take its toll on uh, canine units in Africa. And they have an outstanding veterinary program there and they are on top of it constantly and I really have to you know really give credit to the team over there and how watchful and careful they are with these dogs in maintaining you know and maintaining them and making sure that their health is taken care of they're they're excellent in terms of food I know that obviously dog food is in Africa as well course, but I yeah. wonder if you're out in the bush if you're not going to chewy.com <laughs> So right. I, yeah, it, it is. It's a difficult, it's a process because everything has to be flown in from Nairobi and it's expensive. We've got, you know, dogs that are, you know, prone, you know, there's, there's everything wants to kill you in Africa. And so up from the smallest amoeba <laughs> to the yeah. largest toothy, you know, animal. <laughs> so, you know, keep, like I said, keeping those dogs healthy, you know, keeping them, you know, there's snake bite, you know, injuries, there are, you know, insects 
insect injuries that cause, you know, deadly, you know, viruses. And so, like I said, it, it's, that's been a, that has been a really big challenge and they do it very well. And are you planning any more trips back there or have you pretty much set them up to be self-sustaining at this point? That's correct. They are pretty much self-sustaining at this point. And we have some very, very good friends over there and we would love to see them again and probably will make a second trip at some point in time, just for the, the leisure of it. <laughs> yeah. And have, has there been expansion into other areas? Because I know there are other programs going on, but um, you know, I would imagine they've got statistics to show the benefit of the use of dogs. They do. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that there are, we've been contacted by other parks um, around that area, you know, asking about the same kinds of programs, none of which have come to fruition. The uh, veterinarian that we worked with over there was a very tenacious young lady and had an incredible aptitude for um, securing funding. And so funding is always a big problem. And, um, and so we were, we were, we looked at one program in the Congo. Um, there was uh, a park in Sabo that had called us and none of those have come to fruition yet. So I don't know what the expansion is going to look like in the future. I know South Africa is starting to use dogs pretty readily. Okay. So if you had any um, training, aha, are there any things that you learned over there that you've sort of brought back to implement here? Or are they just too different? You know, we know we learned a ton. I mean, the experience that we got over there um, that we added to our own um, was incredible. And, you know, watching just being able to watch the dogs work in that kind of environment um, through those kinds of contaminations and, you know, uh, challenges that the environment, um, you know, gives you over in that in that um kind of you know situation um capabilities that had yeah, never been tapped into exactly. that are now exposed and some, right? some of the some of the capabilities where the dogs just couldn't do it you know what we learned was okay here's a situation where the dogs just are not capable of running through this mess you know a, a herd of 500 zebras that come across you know, the track gets lost uh, in amongst 500 zebras. It was almost like the dog ran into a wall. Makes sense. <laughs> it doesn't seem unreasonable. Just, <laughs> yeah, the dog just runs into a wall and can't work his way out of it. So what we had to look, we learned was to, to move the dogs forward, you know, where the herds had gone through, we would move the dogs forward and try and get around that contamination and work that way. Sort of so, almost like going through a river and picking it up on the other side. Exactly. That's a that's pretty that's a pretty good analogy. But you know, watching this over and over and over again sort of gave us a really good instinct for you know what was possible in that environment, what was not, and maybe some of it transferring over here as well. Super. And how hard is it to give up these dogs that you've spent nine months training and developing a relationship with? You know, Sonia, not hard at all because the conservancy um, needed them so badly and the handlers were, were absolutely and utterly attached to these animals when we left them. I mean, grooming and bathing and playing. And I mean, they just, they, not only did they give them a job, but they gave them a relationship. And even despite the fact it was a, what, initially a four to one ratio, how did that work out? Four to one ratio. What do you mean by that? 
it, four handlers to one dog because yeah. you said there were eight initially with two <laughs> yeah, dogs. So yeah. how, how did they yeah. divide them? How did they yeah, share? They, they did. I, I'm not sure how they worked all of that out. The rangers worked in shifts and they had their they had their their dogs that they worked with. So you might get two or three guys that would work one dog and two or three guys that would work another. They've got six or seven dogs now. And I'm not sure how many handlers, but, you know, rangers go on vacations. And so they had to have, you know, backup guys being able to, you know, get these dogs out and deploy them um, when the regular handlers were on vacation. So I think they probably have two or three handlers, two per dog now. And the dogs did okay with that. The dogs did just fine with that. That's interesting. Would you think that the uh, hound would do better with that than maybe a pointy ear? I have, I, I do not know how to answer that question. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I I don't know. When you were over there, I just always have to ask a gear question. What was the piece of gear that you just could not have lived without? Piece of gear? Oh, duct tape. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What were you using the duct tape for? So duct tape repaired everything from broken fenders to, you know, broken glasses, torn tents, uh, mirrors on cars. Um, and actually I would, I would duct tape my pant legs to my boots every single morning so that the critters would stay out of my pants. Oh, wow. That's a good one. That's a yeah. good one. So, yeah, duct tape was, well, we'd, we'd take three or four rolls with us every time we go. Wow. And we actually leave it there. Oh my so, gosh. That's yeah. kind of funny. Well, that's good. That's not an expensive one. That's something every dog yep. handler can afford, right? Yep. Um, so do you have any, um, you want to tell us what's going on at the, um, canine training Academy as far as guest um, so, guests yeah. coming in or the work you're doing? So, yeah, we've had, um, some guest instructors over the years. We've been, we've worked pretty closely with, uh, Dick Stahl over in Holland and generally have an annual seminar. Of course, this year was canceled, unfortunately with the COVID-19 going on. Um, we have one of our own seminars, John and, uh, Wes Gulliford, and myself are teaching a four-day tracking class in uh, September. Was scheduled for June. Is now scheduled for September. Um, and that's on your website. Yeah, that's on the website. Good. I think it might be full, but I'm not sure. There might be a couple slots left. Um, and so, for for right now, um, you know, we've got that going on. But you know, everything is so unknown right now with the COVID-19. We're we're just kind of you know we have classes in the works, but sort of tentatively. Well, I just want to say one of the things that I really appreciate about you and John is despite your decades and your incredible experiences, you're still out seeking better, more knowledge, learning, trying to apply it, trying to share it. So I just want to say thank you for that because um, that's kind of a hard thing to find sometimes. People get their method. They say it works for me. I don't need to change. And you guys, I mean, you've You've done as much as anybody can do, yet you're still out looking for more, which is really impressive. Yeah, there's, uh, in our opinion, both of us, and I can speak for John with this, there's always something to learn. So, or something that you thought you knew that you really didn't, or, you know, a new information out there. So different environments, and there's a lot, there's a lot to learn out there. I am going to tap into talking to John about some of his, you were mentioning some of his capers, I guess is the best oh, word for them. And yep, the stories he has of tracking prisoners and yep. and going after big time fugitives. And so there's, there's many, many stories. And I wanted you to be able to share this one. And I 
um, hope to be speaking with John in the future about some of the crazy stuff he's done over however many decades, close to four decades of doing this, right? He's probably forgotten more than I'll ever know. <laughs> that's that's the kind of that's a dog man for you, right? And <laughs> yeah. and the other thing I like is that you're you're well rounded in terms of your dog experience. It's not just tracking trailing. It's not just hounds. It's it's you know you've done some protection. Obviously, you've done the protection dogs and you've done the pointy eared dogs and detection dogs. And so it's not narrow in scope, which I also really like that because I think some people get a little bit closed minded. Yeah, I think that can happen if you don't try to expand uh, your knowledge and, you know, just get stuck on one, one breed or one thing. Yeah. And you guys have run the gamut for sure. We have. When you start training Wolverines or Dingoes, then I'm not, I don't know what I'm going to think, but (laughs) it's uh, because there was somebody doing avalanche work with Wolverines at one point up in um, Alaska, I think. So we don't need to go that far, but who knows what critter you're going to bring back from Africa the next time you come. Oh, well, you're right. Who knows? (laughs) Any last words you'd like to share? Thoughts, um, plugs, anything you can think of? No, just that, that, uh, that website, uh, maratriangle.org. Boy, if anybody's of a mind to, they could really use our help right now. Well, we'll definitely put that up on the show notes. And um, I thank you so much for speaking with me and your time and sharing these experiences because they are very rare and it's it's really neat to hear what's going on okay so thanks so much well that wraps up this first episode of canine top tales i hope you enjoyed it and that you'll come back for more perhaps you can drop us a kind review and subscribe to the channel 